Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On Commons People this week, Boris Johnson is back. I'm sorry I've been away from my desk for much longer than I would have liked. But is the lockdown here to stay? We, we've certainly got to get the daily testing right up to hundreds of thousands. And can Keir Starmer win back the Red Wall? The Keir, the Keir Starmer of North London does not go down well on the high street of Dillington. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Wall. Hi Arj. Hey Paul. We've also got Rachel Wearmouth. Hello. Hi Rachel. And we're delighted to be joined by the new Conservative MP for Rother Valley, Alexander Stafford. Hello. Hi Alexander, how, how are you? How's lockdown treating you? I'm good, thank you. Well, it's quite busy, isn't it, I must say. I mean, it's it's a whole new way of working. I guess everyone is as well, both, frankly, in terms of the volume of work coming in, the casework people obviously are concerned and worried about what this means for them, their businesses, but also doing things like this via Zoom or Skype or Google Meets. This is the first time you use Google Meets here. Uh, all these various ways of actually getting a better idea of how to work. And now Parliament's obviously sitting, started sitting last week again. We're doing all this virtually, and it's all frankly a bit weird isn't it it's all a bit weird <laughs> doing directly and um, i'm looking forward to when it goes back to normal let's put it that yeah. way yeah yeah sure i'm actually getting a bit of zoom fatigue now but uh, anyway let's carry on <laughs> <laughs> um well, well what a month it's been for boris johnson he returned to work on monday three weeks after being admitted to hospital with coronavirus and just two days after taking back the reins his partner carrie simmons gave birth to a baby boy it is his. Uh, the Prime Minister also addressed the nation from Downing Street on his return to work on Monday. Let's listen. I'm sorry I've been away from my desk for much longer than I would have liked. And I want to thank everybody who has stepped up, in particular the First Secretary of State, Dominic Raab, who's done a terrific job. But once again, I want to thank you, the people of this country, for the sheer grit and guts you've shown and are continuing to show. Every day I know that this virus brings new sadness and mourning to households across the land. And it is still true that this is the biggest single challenge this country has faced since the war. And I in no way minimise the continuing problems we face. Um, Paul, lots of people are saying Boris Johnson's going to come back a changed man. What do you think? Well, I thought what was really interesting about that address uh, on Monday on the steps of number 10 was the way he tried to balance, obviously, his natural ebullience, um, his sort of 
innate optimism with with uh, a more somber tone, uh, a recognition not not just that he'd been through this thing personally, but that actually for a lot of people this is uh, such a, a serious and clear and threat to to their lives and livelihoods. And I thought he he managed to balance it out pretty effectively actually overall. Um, you didn't see as much of the rhetorical flourishes that we're used to. I mean, there was the the line about um, comparing the the virus to a mugger who's being tackled by the nation. Um, but apart from that, he kept it quite straight. And that was probably the right thing to do, because I think he's obviously trying to buy himself a, a bit of political capital. But everyone knows that actually he is this natural uh, optimist. And if even Boris Johnson now says, look, it's time to get serious, I think that that the message to the public will be, look, Boris says this and it really is serious and we're listening to what he's saying. Yeah, um, Alexander, Boris Johnson um, is not the only politician to uh, have had a child during the lockdown. You've you've had one. Is that that's right? Yes, yes. My, my, my first, my daughter Persephone, she was born on St. George's Day uh, last week. So a very apposite uh, day to be born, a good, good day to be born. So just like uh, Boris, I too have this is a new delightful thing on my hands as well. So it's uh, getting used to both her and the way of working and just being a father for the first time so it is incredibly exciting yeah and, and what was it like i mean we haven't had many details about um kind of what happened with with boris johnson and carrie simmons but they're obviously having to face some restrictions which i assume you, you'll have had to face as well what kind of restrictions were they and will it was it difficult for you will it have been difficult yeah well, well obviously prior to uh, my wife giving birth we still had the regular appointments um attorney appointments but i was banned from going into the hospital with her so my wife had to go separately and have that which you know is not ideal but it was good care intention and then obviously when my wife went into the hospital for, for the birth uh, I could go in and take part if that's the right word as much as possible but the weird thing was after uh, after my wife gave birth uh, I had to leave the hospital within a couple of hours I was basically thrown out in the nicest possible way and my wife had a few complications she's home and all safe now but she was in hospital for another four days uh, with Persephone and I wasn't allowed to be there. I wasn't allowed to visit. So it was a very odd situation I found was my wife gave birth at about three o'clock in the morning. I had to leave out of the hospital by six and I didn't see them again properly until the Sunday evening. So quite a large period of time. I got all these exciting moments uh, of being a new father and wanting to be with my, my daughter, and my wife. But for a large chunk of that time, I couldn't be there. Of course, I understand because for safety and all the issues around Corona, it's essential. But it also is it shows that there's so much more to the coronavirus than maybe people like to believe. It's those special moments you want to have, but necessarily you can't have it. And that's just one example. A, a lot of the conversation now has, has been about whether the PM is a hawk or a dove on the lockdown. And, and we'll talk about uh, um, exactly what might happen with the lockdown in a bit. But Rachel, what's your reading of Boris Johnson's kind of intervention since he's come back? Um, since, since he's come back? Um, yeah. Well, he's... He's, it was chairing cabinet for the first time today, so I think we'll learn a little bit more uh, later on. I think um, Rob, Dominic Rob being in charge has kind of been like a holding position for quite some time. So I think we'll we'll learn more and more about what direction we're going to take. You know, if we're going to sort of have a lockdown that's eased sooner, or if it's going to stay in place for 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 much longer. I mean, we've, we've always the sort of holding position has constantly been the government will always be guided by. The science um and but there are some big choices to come and i think we, ha we haven't had much of an indication of which way he's going to go yet i don't think 
Yeah, Alexander, do you think there was maybe a, a, a lack of grip or speed of decision-making while the PM was away? I mean, we kind of seem to be in this holding pattern for a while. No, I don't think it was, because I think the whole lockdown situation has been, what, three, four weeks now. So, yes, in some ways, it is a holding pattern. The plans were in place, the lockdown, getting the hospitals up and running, the ventilators up and running, dealing with the, the day-to-day issues, such as supply of PPE in certain aspects and the testing, clearly. So that, that the plan has stayed the same. On the actual sort of lockdown, I think uh, we're some some ways in a slight advantage or disadvantage as you look at it is because clearly other countries, Germany and Italy and Spain, are easing their lockdown already before that we were doing. So we will see, frankly, what happens to them. And uh, it's a big unknown. We will, everyone's talking about the second wave, and that is a genuine thing to be concerned about. And these other countries have left, left the lockdown first or eased it. So we will see what happens. And I know there's been a slight increase already in the infection rates in Germany. So we can make take a lot of lessons from other countries uh, and, and, and model what, what our response is on what they are doing as well. So we can use that to take advantage of it. But personally, I think we need to obviously do what we can to sort of save lives. But ultimately, we do need our businesses back on our feet at some point. We can't pay for an NHS, an NHS to save lives, unless we have the revenue from businesses. We need the, the two need to be working hand in hand to provide the resources and funds to save lives. So it's a, it's a very tricky balancing act. But ultimately, lives have to come first more than anything else. And if the evidence says that lives will be lost or more lives will be lost from, from easing the lockdown, then we need to stick with it. I think it's interesting that that was Boris Johnson's message. Uh, that was the overriding message was that... Um, he wasn't sort of gung ho about this. That actually safety first was was the priority this week, and it's that in, for him stylistically and tonally, that's that's quite a different Boris Johnson you're hearing. Um, the interesting thing about Dominic Raab was that everything I'm hearing from people who who were in some of those meetings with him behind closed doors felt that he 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 did really well because he didn't grandstand he precisely didn't try to be the prime minister he just tried to ask the right questions at the right time and get the meetings flowing and i think that's quite interesting even this week we saw in pmqs and we could talk about it later i thought that um he had uh he'd grown into the job shall we say this week much more than last week yeah that's interesting because some people have said he's not maybe not a natural communicator he's not i think he'd be the first to admit that but actually maybe Right now, um, what what needs to happen is that behind the scenes, the, the machine is just running. Um, and while, while the PM was away, that was the priority. I think I think the I think the public will also um, take some convincing as to why the lockdown should be eased. I think they have very much they feel like they have not not ownership of this crisis, but they have like a lot of their own responsibilities for it, and they feel like very passionate about um, keeping the lockdown in place. Um, so I think that I think it's there's a bit of a conversation that the government will need to have with the public as to why they would need to ease restrictions if they want to. And I think you raise a very interesting point, Rich, about the public, because there's one thing the government mandating something on the lockdown, no lockdown, but ultimately we need people, the public, to actually obey it. And I think we've all seen, even this week especially, going out, shopping, whatever, people are not socially distancing anymore. Far more people are out on the streets, far more people are shopping. And to me, that is a concern. And that goes back to the issue like face masks. I'm seeing m- loads of people now with face masks, yet they seem to be not doing the social distancing. So we don't want to lull people into a false sense of security by easing things. But equally, if the vast swathes of the population are just disobeying the rules anyway, frankly, then the rules will have to be adapted to try and be on the side of the people. We need people to understand and agree with what we're doing. So, Alexander, some some Conservative MPs have been calling for for a plan by early May or even an easing of the restrictions by early May. Do you have a kind of timeline in mind? Uh, 
ideally, it's, I would like it as soon as possible, as soon as it's safe as possible, as safe as possible. And that, that's what I want to say, because there's no definite timeline. I think I said what we're seeing in Germany and Spain, Italy, with them easing lockdowns, we can learn so many lessons in the next week or two that actually I would say for the next couple of weeks, let's stick to our lockdown. Let's learn the lessons from other countries for ill or for good and then put that into whatever plan. Clearly, the government has some idea of what they want to do when they want when they're going to announce it they don't have a time frame but they have an idea of what they're going to to open but as i said we can't mix the messages a lot of people still aren't obeying even more so now some of the lockdown things and if you start talking about getting out of this people say well it's going to happen in a couple of days time or weeks time or two weeks time let's let's go ahead now it makes no difference what a few days here and there With lockdown life meaning a million Zoom calls, it's important to stay looking fresh. For the best clean-shaven look, Harry's shaving products are here to help. Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price, with their blades almost half the price of the five leading blade brands. And you can get started today with Harry's trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your trial set delivered to you including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and travel blade cover, by going to harrys.com forward slash huff. That's harrys.com forward slash huff. While while the debate um, over the lockdown has been going on, the, the government has continued to face criticism over the number of deaths in care homes, the lack of PPE and the failure to hit its testing target. This week, Dominic Raab explained why hitting the testing target was so important in terms of easing the lockdown. Let's listen to him. Well, we, we've certainly got to get the daily testing right up to hundreds of thousands, which along with the, web, uh, the, the tracking and the tracing gives us a chance to... It, what, what it does, and what's really important about this, gives us more flexibility mm. because we can open up measures, open up access in the way you've described, but monitor very carefully the effects. And that, along with the vaccine and therapeutics, will be the medium sure. and long-term way of dealing with coronavirus sustainably, responsibly, for good. Paul, Matt Hancock's testing target looks like it's going to fall by the wayside, and that's obviously shaping things on on where we go from here and how quickly we can ease the lockdown. Well, I think... um... I mean, I wrote about this last week. I think actually in many ways, Matt Hancock um, won't be unhappy if he doesn't meet that exact target, as long as there's been a huge progress. Um, This target is always about driving up the private sector as much as the public sector and about all those private sector labs working together and just galvanizing them. So you can see from his point of view that actually uh, the precise date of it won't matter. but I think actually what it does show, I talked to a one Whitehall official this week who said, look, this isn't a PHE target. It's not even a DHSC target. It's a Matt Hancock target. And that's important. It shows that there's a minister who's prepared to put his neck on the line uh, just because he thinks that's the best way to, to get things moving within the Whitehall machine. Um, and that's why you won't hear this really described as a government target by a lot of people. Um, you know, it's a ministerial, individual ministerial target. And you could say that's brave or foolhardy. I mean, one thing I would say about it is it seems quite strange to have a target that actually um, seems so crude. In other words, um, it, it could have been a target about trying to get in place the capacity or it could have been about um, saying, for example, we'll get a, a test to all those frontline staff who need it, for example. It could have been 
we're going to guarantee that every NHS worker, every care worker is going to get a test by X date, then you don't have a number necessarily because um, you can flex a bit of that stuff. I mean, I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. And his interesting thing is that as Starmer himself said this week, he's prepared to give the government a bit of slack on it. Yeah, uh, Matt Hancock can't seem to resist setting targets. He said uh, this week as well that um, the tra- test, track and trace capability at least would be in place by mid-May. Do, do you think um, this approach, Alexander, as Paul kind of set out of, of trying to drive things through public pledges almost is, is a wise one? Yeah, I think obviously clearly testing is very important and getting the numbers up. But I think one of the issues that we have been facing, and I face locally, my local trust, is that people weren't coming forward for the tests. Over the Easter weekend at my local trust, only a third of the tests were used. So in other words, they had this huge capacity. They were waiting to go. It was over the Easter weekend, but people just weren't coming forward. So it's, it's one thing having the actual physical capacity to make tests. It's the other thing actually encouraging people to come forward. But let's be honest, everyone, everyone keeps saying we want more tests, we need more tests, and we do. But if you say to someone, get in your car, drive to a site, wait for some time, have a, a swab put in you, which isn't that pleasant, let's be honest, to be tested. Suddenly a lot of people say, well, maybe someone else can do it. So, so, so it's all those sort of other things you have to deal with. It's not just about the capacity and getting out there. We need to encourage people to come forward to the tests and everyone has to play their part. So if you're in that vulnerable category, if you're in the older person, if you work the NHS and if you have symptoms, it's your, frankly your duty to go forward, actually actively try and get the test. But we're not going to force people sort of, sort of North Korea style down the crowds, testing everybody, just saying you must have a test because that's a target. That's not what this government is about. We're not some sort of top down status government. But we're trying to say this is the right thing. It's the right thing for the country. You need to do this and you should be doing it. And I personally would want to encourage to see more uh, employers being and employees being given that time off to go for that testing and say, actually, that is your, your duty. Yes, we are giving you the half day or a few hours off work to go to the test site to get tested. And I want the government to support that sort of thing, to encourage more people to go forward to the testing. I was just going to say, you don't necessarily think that there's this huge demand for, for testing there for the public then? All I'm saying is my local area, when this was uh, two weeks ago, they had you know only a third of the tests were used. And uh, yeah, the NHS, I voted to say, we have more capacity, we're encouraging more people to go, we want people to go and do it. And yes, some of the testing sites clearly are not sort of next door to where you live. It is take some effort to go to, to, where you is, to where you are. So we want to encourage people to do that. And just to encourage people to socially distance and to wash hands, people understood there is a sort of moral imperative. I think we now need to transfer that into testing. Now we've opened up the testing, which is good. We want more people to come forward and say, yes, it's my duty not only to only go shopping a couple of times a week or not to go see my grandparents. It's my duty now to go to get tested and it, if I have the symptoms and then go forward that way. Yeah, so I just wanted to ask you about this more. It's interesting because obviously the testing at the moment is only for people with symptoms. Hmm. So uh, they wouldn't be at work anyway. So, I mean, is there evidence of employers kind of stopping people getting tested? I'm just hearing from, from, from hearsay as a constituency MP that people, frankly, some people are disobeying the laws in the sense that if people are still working with symptoms, what they think are symptoms, and it's because they fear, feel they don't have the time or the, the inclination or even they need to keep the business going to, to take that back. We want to say, actually, if you have those symptoms, first of all, you should be isolating. Secondly, you should be going out there and having the test to try and keep control of this. And and also, would you like, yeah, as you said, with like with hand washing, would you like to see the government launch a kind of public, an information campaign or drive, to to get people to go and get tested? 
I think that's a, yeah. I think that's a very positive thing. But as you said, you need to have the moment for the test. You need to have the symptoms. So we need to make sure that the sites aren't flooded with people who, frankly, shouldn't be there. Because if people go there and get a false negative and they're positive, then suddenly the whole situation can explode. We just need people who can be tested, i.e. those people with symptoms, but they should be going. And yes, I would encourage the government to do everything to get those people to be tested. Mm-hmm. And there's also, there's also the other problem of just a lot of people don't have a car, you know, yeah. so they can't, they can't actually get to a, a testing site. How would you yeah. propose solving that problem? I, I agree. And I had an email today from a constituent on exactly that point, And they pointed out rightly that we probably are told not to use public transport, understandably, when they've got symptoms. So if you're asking people to get on public transport with other people, maybe are going to work with the symptoms, potentially affecting people to go to a testing site, which may be, you know, an hour away by the bus, or in my case, over two hours by public transport, if you miss the buses, suddenly you're having a huge knock-on effect. So it's about maybe providing a better service get people actually to the sites i know where there's like a dedicated uh, bus service or dedicated transport service run by the local health authorities to actually get those people so they don't have to go on public transport so they don't have to use their car if they don't have it and actually take them to the testing sites so like all these things it's all very well having the sites and the tests you've got to look at as a whole holistic approach about how to encourage people to do that and make it easier and safe for them to do so and obviously this will become even more important when they when we have the test track and trace scheme um open and possibly even then further down the line when we get antibody tests mm-hmm. um alexandra you you were you were campaigning on 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 something else earlier in this crisis which was to change the law to stop people profiteering um from the crisis um where are you on that yeah so i'm sure as you remember it may seem a long time ago now it was only a month ago i looked at this uh <laughs> that uh there's a lot of um hoarding going on stockpiling and then leading to black market profiteering in the sense that people are buying up lots of goods and not necessarily goods you you yourself you need such as my own case i was looking for a baby thermometer for, for my, my then-to-be child uh you couldn't get them and there weren't any more babies around but people clearly were buying up these goods and then selling them on ebay and other sites for hundreds of percent markup. For instance, the baby thermometer that I personally was looking at was retailing at about £15. You couldn't buy it for about £150 online. And people were using this to take advantage. And I had constituents contact me with about hand sanitizer, toilet paper, baby formula was another big thing. People were hoarding and then selling off at vast, I mean, I get a bag of uh, rice, like a normal 500 gram bag of rice in, in one of my uh, sort of supermarkets or uh, corner shops, I was retailing for £8. For a bag of rice, which is what less than about fifty p normally, it's those sort of things which are really taking the goods out of ordinary people's hands uh, and undoing that. I think the problem we had then was the supermarkets just frankly weren't coping with capacity. And I did launch a campaign to try and get legislation through to uh, adapt legislation to basically target these these black market profiteers. Luckily, it seems that. They doesn't doesn't need to be legislation at the moment. I think the supermarkets have really done an amazing job and really got their supply chains going, whether it's initially by uh, restricting the number of items, but now most restrictions are lifted. So actually, I think we're seeing a huge decrease. In fact, you go to lots of these sorts of corner shops and you'll see them overflowing with toilet paper they cannot sell now and overflowing with certain goods because the supermarkets have kicked into gear, got the goods going and the supply chains eased up. So I don't think there needs to be legislation anymore. I'm pleased that Boris, in his last PMQs or last PMQs he took, said they would look at it if the situation has continued. But at the moment, generally, I don't feel there's a need to legislate for it. So I think it's amazing how the country just gets going and works together to get the goods going. Yeah. Can anyone find flour, though? 
Oh, I got some actually the other day. Quite good actually. Self raising and everything. So uh, eggs though, eggs are now going to be a problem for some reason. So it does really seem. seem. Although I was told though that the flour shortage is not to do with flour; it's to do with the bags the flour goes in. Apparently, there's lots of flour because normally most of the flour, all but only fifteen percent of the flour, uh, only fifty percent of flour gets sold in supermarkets. The rest goes to the industrial bakeries. It goes to restaurants, all those sort of things. And there aren't restaurants open anymore. So they can't actually got anywhere to put the flour in the bags. They've got huge amounts of flour. I just can't get it to anyone. We've been trying to get you on the podcast for a while, Alexander, because you're one of a wave of new Red Wall Tories, uh, those that took Heartland seats from mm. Labour for the first time in decades, or in your case, I think, ever. Ever, yeah. Um, Keir Starmer is now Labour leader, uh, and he has been calling this week for, for a better future for key workers in the light of the coronavirus crisis. Let's have a listen. We owe it to them to make sure they've got the right equipment in the right place at the right time. And we will continue to press on that. And we go out every Thursday to clap our key workers, to those that are taking that risk to their lives. But we can't go out and clap on a Thursday and pretend that when this is over, we can return to business as usual. Many of those on the front line have been undervalued and underpaid for far, far too long. And we owe them and the whole country a vision of a better future when we come through this pandemic, as we will. Um, Paul, let's go to you first. Uh, a week on from, from the rave reviews of Starmer's first PMQs, how, how do you think he's doing? Well, I think um, this week was a, a useful reality check for, for Keir Starmer. Last week, he did get rave reviews because he, he did bring that sense of a forensic examination. And that's a word that it's interesting. The word forensic has now become uh, a bugbear online for a lot of Corbyn supporters. They use it as a form of criticism and easy criticism saying, ah, Keir Starmer's forensic, is he? Oh, that's really, really important. And, and they're, they're, there's a sense of ridicule of that word. Um, this week, it, there was a bit of a, a change because Dominic Raab, as I said earlier, has got used to PMQs relatively quickly. And he, I think, got the better of Starmer in some of the exchanges, while Starmer did continue to make some good points. So, you know, when Raab said, look, I, I would have thought the honourable gentleman, you know, he based his career at the DPP on evidence. And yet what evidence has he got to suggest he knows better than the experts? That was a, a pretty impressive way of hitting back. Um, and at the same time, Starmer, I think you're seeing a different form of opposition. He, while he agreed with the government that there should be more testing, and he and he and he and he gave Matt Hancock a bit of extra leeway on his on his target. He also rather cleverly said, "So much do I agree with testing. I want more of it, and I agree with the Prime Minister's two hundred fifty thousand uh, tests a day." And and effectively put down a marker saying what, well, you know, you could tell this is a long term strategy, not a tactical week to week strategy, which is if we don't get to 250,000 a day, um, Starmer will say, well, why haven't we? And you can see from his point of view, he's obviously thinking test and trace is going to be a crucial way out of the, the lockdown. And and if there are any further failures, he, he's he's sort of setting down a marker for the future. And I thought that was a more long term strategic way of thinking of PMQ. Yeah, Alexander, you took your seat uh, when Corbyn was Labour leader. Are you a bit more worried now about hanging on to it? No, I think uh, let, let's be honest. Uh, clearly, Keir Starmer is a more competent leader than Jeremy Corbyn. But that wouldn't be very hard. But I think if you look at the history of my seat, first time in a hundred years, and many of the other former Red Bull seats, there's a direction of travel in these seats. 
And it's not just Jeremy Corbyn and Brexit clearly were big players, but the direction of travel over 2015, 2017 and before shows the ECB's moving further and further away from the Labour fold. And I think what is very interesting is if you look at the traditionally marginal seats uh, in the North and the Midlands, they're still pretty marginal. But if you look at what the traditionally safe Labour seats, such as myself, Bolsover, Bassett Law, they're now frankly, strong conservative seats. And I think the population, uh, the, the people who live in our areas, really has been a sea change. They really are understood that finally that Labour is not on their side and have been taking them for granted. And not only that, the Labour views, what they espouse, and we're going back to, sort of back to Blair times, is not what the people on the ground actually believe themselves. Now that the, the links often to some of the, the unions have broken, people are saying, well, actually, when I look at the policies and the people involved, who actually talks to me, who actually listens to what I'm saying and who actually shares similar views and values? And clearly across the seats, across the North and the, and the Midlands, Labour is not the answer. People realise, well, this isn't for me. And that's why I think we've seen these huge swings, more than the marginals, these huge swings. Like my seat uh, in, in 74 had a 30-something thousand majority to Labour, the safest Labour seat in the country. I now have a 6,000 majority as a Conservative. The swing is just astronomical. And I think, frankly, if things continue the way they're going, we'll see our, our seats actually get stronger Conservative seats. Because a lot of people did vote, uh, didn't vote Conservative, they voted for the Brexit Party in my area, uh, or the Independents, and because they haven't real, realised that, frankly, the Tories could win. But now they realise the Tories could win and we're on their side. I think we'll see even more people switching across uh, to Labour. And I... I'm not saying this flippantly. I've, I've been an MP now for six months, it's been a great six months, and I have a lot of people contacting me. But I've yet to have a single person say, I voted for you uh, in 2019, but you've let us down, you're ignoring us, I'm going to go back to Labour or go somewhere else. None at all. So I think people have realised, actually, if the Conservatives are on their side, and it's more than just big capital spending, I, don't want to go down the route, so I didn't go down promising a new hospital, a new airport, a new train station like other people did. It goes back to values and views. And people understand that. They're like, who is going to best represent me? Who's going to be my aspirations, my family views, my family aspirations? Who's actually going to listen to me and take that forward? And clearly Labour under Blair, Brown, Miliband, then definitely Jeremy Corbyn is not the views of the people. Jeremy Corbyn, Labour Party, the Keir, the Keir Starmer of North London does not go down well on the high street of Dinnington. The people of Maltby do not want Sir Keir Starmer. They don't want his views. They don't want his views. He's not on their side. And what will make oh, it very oh, well, oh. metropolitan London is not what go down well in my part of South York. All right, oh, all right Alexander. What, what do you think <laughs> to that, Rachel? What, what are you picking up from four Redwall seats? Do they, do they not want Sir Keir Starmer from Camden? Um, I haven't picked up on any specific criticism of Keir Starmer yet from people I've spoken to in, in Red Bull seats. Um, but I think that I think like like Paul was saying earlier, it, this is part of the Labour Party strategy right now, which is to stop looking like um, an opposition that just opposes everything and loves free stuff, you know, like free broadband, lol. Um, it's, it's about sort of starting to look like a party of government if they, if they can. Um, and then that, I think that's informing some of the way um, Starmer is talking about, you know, we want to support the government where we can. But I think where Alexander's absolutely right at the minute is that I, I think a lot of um, red wall voters are uh, bonding more, more strongly with the Conservative Party during this crisis, because the, I think you're talking about a lot of people who are very patriotic and they feel like very involved in the response to coronavirus and, um, you know, the, 
this is a this is a, a, a moment in our history where you know the the country is part of what the government is doing you know they're kind of they're taking part in this lockdown they're they feel very much responsibility and ownership of this crisis and it's they feel like it's a moment to come together and i think a lot of the problems that the conservatives used to have in the past where you know in in thatcher times where you, you didn't see investment in public services and things like that i think um this 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 is part of the sea change we're seeing now they'll they'll think differently about that in future i think I think that, but I think you've got to be careful, Alexander, because you, you, you for obvious reasons, uh, elided the Blair and Brown years with the Miliband and Corbyn years. But as you would know from the history of your own seat, um, in '97, you could weigh the Labour vote in Rother Valley. It was twenty-three thousand under Blair. It was a minimum of fourteen thousand that seat. It only went down under Brown, Miliband, and Corbyn. If you've got a leader like Blair. The challenge, obviously, for someone like Starmer is to recapture that sense of national unity, reaching out to everyone. Um, so I'd be wary about all those comparisons, though, I'd say. And also, the interesting <laughs> thing is that in your seat, obviously, there was a very famous former Tory schoolboy, William Haig, who was the chair of Rother Valley <laughs> Young Conservatives, if I remember rightly. Um, and um, he's a great example, obviously, for someone who can just keep on battling uh, mm. when they were leader opposition, then ultimately... It, all right, they didn't win an election, but his career turned out to be quite impressive. Um, so I think, you know, it's quite interesting that um, Will, you've won that uh, totemic seat. And I'm sure William Haig is delighted because um, it's well, his I, own battleground. Well, well, indeed, I must say, a week after the general election, he wrote actually an article in The Telegraph just about the Rother Valley seat and saying this is <laughs> Amazing. So uh, I was very, very pleased. And actually, uh, he took me out for uh, dinner uh, when I got into Parliament. And it was a great conversation. But he just, I can't believe this the whole time about uh, Rother Valley. Yeah. I think the fact there were people like William Hague, even during the sort of Thatcher years, still banging the conservative drum from South Yorkshire, means that it was never a homologous, just one lump of Labour voters. There's always been a diversity of views and a diversity of values. And I would very much say those people's views and values have pretty much stayed the same. But I would say that the Labour Party views and values, though, have changed from that traditional working class, patriotic, very good word to use, patriotic, family love, loving um, group of people. I said, like, when I went to uh, the Remembrance Day parade down in uh, Thurcroft, my constituency last year, every single lamppost had a poppy on with the name and the date of somebody who died in the Great War. In the, the Weatherspoons in Maltby, they had a recreation of the, the poppies, like in the Tower of London, coming down. These are people who had come out of the houses, stand to attention as afraid go past. You would not find that in London. And that's a great sadness. These people love their families, love their communities, and love their country. And I do think the Conservative Party now speaks to those people far more than the Labour Party does, or frankly, ever will under Sir Keir Starmer. Rachel, you wanted to come in. Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't necessarily think that the first target that Keir Starmer is going for is um, is winning back the Red Bull seats. I think he's actually probably thinking more about targeting, you know, Lib Dem voters or those mm. kind of like Remainer conservative voters that you would find in different areas of the country. And I think that might be where he builds mm. his first block if he wants to make progress. And just one other thing on the Red Bull seats, I think it's going to be interesting come next election, is that not only will people like Walsakir be trying to target back other Bassett Lords and Bolsovers of this world, 
But there's other seats which Conservatives only just lost in that red wall. In my neighbouring seat, Wentworth and Dern, uh, 2,000 votes, which is yeah. very marginal. John Healy's seat, that is now going to be a Conservative target come next time. And, you know, we might win it if you have a good campaign. So, so Keir's got to be trying, he can't just rest on his laws and try to attack. He needs to defend quite a few of these seats who maybe didn't vote Conservative last time because, you no, know, they said the Conservatives can't win here, so I'll vote Brexit party. And suddenly a lot of those voters realise, well, actually, we're in a marginal seat. If I voted Brexit party last time, if I'm with Conservatives, we'll take Conservatives will take the seat. So he's got to be, I think Sir Keir's got to play a very careful game about not sort of overextending himself uh, in the sort of trying to get back these traditional heartlands, actually trying to protect traditional heartlands, and then maybe try and focus more down in the south, as you mentioned, Rachel, with those sort of Lib Dems and more metropolitan areas. So it's going to be quite an interesting balancing act, almost you might have two different campaigns during the next election. Yeah, right. Well, let's move on. Plenty of food for thought there, but it's time for the quiz. Uh, and this week's is all about broken pledges. Um, oh, dear. <laughs> you, could it, you could say it's related to the, the testing target, but we'll give Matt Hancock some leeway on that. Um, but, right, so just 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 shout the answer if you know it. Um, that's it. That's the only rule. Um, question number one. Who pledged to build 3 million homes by 2020, many of which would nest in 10 new eco-towns? David Cameron? No. Was that Gordon Brown? Yes, well done, Paul. Gordon Brown in 2007 on becoming Prime Minister. The towns were never built. Never, <laughs> never are. <laughs> Question number two. George Osborne said he aimed to eliminate the UK deficit by 2015. He failed. But what was the government's deficit in the calendar year 2015? Okay. What are we supposed to know that? <laughs> what, what billion wins. A hundred. Oh god. Okay, Alexander's going for a hundred billion. I've got no idea. I'd say I don't know eighty. Paul's um, going for I'll go. 120, just to try and pitch for a nearer number. Paul, <laughs> <laughs> nearly bang on. It was 81.7 billion. Yeah, uh, equivalent to 4.4% of GDP, but a decrease of 23 billion compared with the previous year and the lowest deficit since 2007. Uh, final one. Uh, Paul's two up. He's, he's won it already. Oh. Um, <laughs> Just for the pride, who um, in the 2016 EU referendum campaign suggested we could negotiate bespoke deals with individual EU countries like France or Germany after Brexit? Probably loads of people. Oh. <laughs> um, who specifically? Dominic Cummings. No, not Cummings. Bespoke deals. Bespoke um, deals is the quote. Uh, Liam Fox. Was it ideas? Oh. No. Maybe no. Nigel Farage. No, David Davis. Ah. He, was, he was then promptly made Brexit secretary and found out that you can't do deals with individual countries. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all we... Oh, congratulations to Paul winning the quiz. You've taken oh. the crown after, oh. after, after a few weeks of MPs winning, yeah. Um, yeah. Alexander, zero points. Oh, that's embarrassing, isn't it? Well, that just shows I know nothing about broken promises and just more like keeping promises. <laughs> 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 Very good. Good. Rachel, zero points. 
I'll live. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. We'll just leave you with a clip from the Brexit Select Committee, which had a surprise visitor this week. The government's timetable for these negotiations still realistic? Uh, well, first of all, uh, I'd like to um, emphasise that I... When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.